Hello and welcome to Hindsight. I'm Lorena Allen. Australia famously rode to prosperity on the sheep's back. Wool was our main export from 1871 right through until the 1960s. The Golden Fleece drew pastoral workers and professionals to rural Australia and sustained many a country town. But in the 1960s, new challenges began to face an old industry. Competition from synthetics, rising costs and waning prices on the international market. The Australian wool industry had some very determined advocates in the ranks of the government and agri-politics who forced through a protectionist scheme in 1972. It's the story of that scheme that we're telling in hindsight today. The Australian Wool Reserve Price Scheme remained in place until February 1991, when it was buried under a stockpile of wool so massive that it threatened to overwhelm the Australian economy. In the 23 years since that crash, the wool industry has shrunk to a third the size it used to be. Just how much this decline can be put down to government intervention in market forces is a key question explored in today's program, produced by Catherine Franey and Prudence Black. It's a rich social, political and economic history that takes us from sheep country in outback Queensland to the highest echelons of the Hawke government to find out how Australia fell off the sheep's back. We begin in Kunnamulla, where Catherine and Prue met grazier Jeff Dunson, recalling the horrors of the wool crisis. What are some of the worst memories that you have of that time? Well, everybody would have told you about shooting the sheep. And when you've got to resort to that in an industry, um, yeah, that's about the bottom of the bucket. This is the reality of Australia's wool crisis. Sheep must die. Millions of sheep. 40 million sheep will have to be killed off. That represents a quarter of the nation's flock. It is the only option, and that means a single bullet into the brain. Producers will be paid $1.80 per head to cover the cost of killing and burying sheep. I can't remember, um, Catherine, I can't remember what the exact numbers were, but we shot thousands and thousands. Lock them up in the yard and just go through and shoot them in the head. Not a job that comes naturally? No, it is not, especially when you've looked after these lambs all their life, shorn them, drenched them, vaccinated, helped them when they can't lamb, and then you turn around and have to shoot them to end their lives. It's terrible, really. The Wool Corporation was funding us to shoot them, so it was our levies paying to shoot these sheep because there was no market for them. Very poor management. The context for what was called the Flock Reduction Scheme at the end of 1990 was an oversupply of wool. Australia, which had long been the world's largest producer, had outdone itself that year with a record wool clip of a billion kilos. The problem was, no one was buying the stuff. The record clip is now a record stockpile. It was a crazy situation, because even though there was a serious downturn in the global economy, the Aussie wool industry wasn't adjusting the price tag. It was still asking for top dollar. At recent sales, as much as 90% of the offering has been bought by the Wool Corporation because of the failure of buyers to reach the existing floor of 870 cents. When the wool didn't sell, the industry became its own customer. Using money levied from the growers and, when that ran out, international borrowings underwritten by Treasury, 
to buy the wool and stockpile it. They burned through billions, like nearly $4 billion in four months. 793. 793 corporation. In February 91, the Hawke government said no more. Overnight, the price of wool halved. And in the fabled Australian wool industry, the shears very nearly stopped going click. It's now been about 25 years since Australia's last great wool boom and the catastrophic crash that followed is well within living memory. This dramatic history is the subject of today's hindsight. I'm Catherine Franey. Recently, I joined forces with Dr Prue Black, who studies fashion and textile history yes. at Sydney University. Oh, look at all those sheeting. Together, we visited sheep country in outback Queensland to find out about the impact of the wool crash of the 90s on graziers, pastoral workers and the very social fabric of rural Australia. Our first stop was Abador, a property just east of Kanamulla, where we met 24-year-old Jesse Moody, the eldest son of a third-generation wool grower. There's, oh, the potties are over there, the potty lambs are over there on the outside of the fence if you want to meet them. There's Betty over there. She's really good sheep, actually. She'd be sort of stud quality. Sonic, who's not very friendly. And Kevin, who we named after Kevin Rudd because we thought he was going to die and we thought Kevin Rudd was going to lose the election. But <laughs> yeah, Kevin Rudd lost the election, but Kevin didn't die, so <laughs> we've still got Kevin. And why, why is she... How can you tell that she's such good quality? How do you define her? She's got great body structure. Mm-hmm. Um, her wool's very clean, her face is, uh, she hasn't got too much facial cover. Oh, hello. She loves being scratched hey. just on the face. Really? Yeah, just below the eyes and there. Oh, yeah. Hey, 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 are you going to butt me? They love neck rubs, especially. But really? Show how it's done. She, if she, yeah, you just, oh, you just scratch yeah, me. Oh. You'll tell she likes it because she lifts up yeah. her back tail. Oh, very really? Very nice, aren't you? Oh, she, she'll try and eat it. Oh, no, you got it. <laughs> you can't eat my earbuds. I need them. You're so pretty. Wow. They like you. <laughs> my name is Jesse Moody. Um, I'm the oldest of three children here um, on Abador Station, 15 k's east of Kunnamulla. We generally run about 12 to 15,000 sheep and uh, 600 head of cattle. I plan on one day taking over the, the property and hopefully going all sheep once again. I, I do like running cattle as well, but yeah, I suppose one day I'd like to either take over or start up my own venture and try and um, do something to help out the industry and yeah, see it grow again, hopefully. Growing up, I remember, yeah, it was always green and we always had we was heaps of sheep around. Um, I don't remember much about the wool prices and things like that, but I know we definitely had a lot of, lot more wool and a lot more sheep than we do now. We always had people helping us out, and there was a lot of staff in the area, and um, 
Definitely back then, Kanamala was a booming town. We had we even sold cars in the town. We had doctors and lawyers and all sorts of things. And everyone from St George used to drive over and party with everyone over here and vice versa. But now, since the wool price crashed, the town's really sort of gone down big time. And I suppose a lot of us try not to think of what it was like back then because it's not a good comparison to now. But The population of Kanamala has halved since the boom times. Pieta Mills runs an outback tour company and a hotel in town. Her grandmother set up the grocery store some 60-odd years ago and her dad still runs it. Pieta has seen a lot of change in the town in the wake of the wool crash. When I left school and was working in a hotel um, here on Friday afternoon from about 4 o'clock through to Sunday night, you couldn't even move to pick up glasses. There were so many people and the town of a weekend would just buzz and all of that left overnight once the industry crashed. Would it be fair to say that Kunnamulla's sort of reason for existing is the wool industry? Previously, absolutely, it was. We were the largest wool producing area in Australia and there was three and four families living on a property and lots of workers um, either on the properties themselves or in the shearing industry because of the large number of sheep here. I think there's about a fifth of the number of sheep that used to be here. Um, when we were kids, Dad would spend all weekend at the shop packing shed orders. Back then, the contractor would ring him and say, I want stores for 30 men for 45 days. And he would go around and pick everything and pack it. And those same sheds these days will um, only have seven men for, say, 14 days. So that's the difference, and the difference is in the production, it's in the number of sheep, which then all translates down to the number of shearers and, and uh, things like that. Over there, that one was one of the first original buildings. It's probably getting back to the 100 years old. It was all cut on this place. Kim Thomas is a seasoned grazier whose great-grandfather came to the district to run merinos more than a century ago. Over there. But we had, um, there's one cottage over there that, that was for a manager and there's another cottage over there and that was for the overseer back in the heyday. In the 80s, um, everyone had enough, you know. You had your new car, you had what you needed. It, was, it wasn't as good as the 60s and the 50s where you had holidays overseas and, you know, you had six weeks off in a year and you had staff, you know. I can remember those when, and that was not the 80s. That would have been going back to when I was a kid, so that's 60s, 70s. We had a cook, we had two maids, we had a cowboy, we had Aboriginals that used to work for us. We had up to about five and they had their own set of quarters and Aboriginals like they are in the Territory or anywhere, they have a system where they have to go walk about. So you'd have whatever you had for the day. They were the best stockmen, trackers and everything else. But you had staff, you had help. To put up a fence was nothing. To put shearing through in those days was nothing. What have we got? This is my book of poems. I self-published this. And this is a oral history of Aboriginal people who worked in the pastoral industry. We dropped in on Herb Wharton. That's what this is about. He lives on the southern edge of Kanamulla, just a stone's throw from the site of the Yumba, the Aboriginal camp where he was born in the 1930s. Most of the Aboriginal people, whether they were related to us or not, 
they were working on stations then, boundary riding or working as stockmen, mustering on the stations, and a lot of them were great shearers too. And we done a lot of droving, and sheep was the main things in them days uh, before cattle took over. Sheep was what the money was in, wool. And all the cockies were more or less, you know, like millionaires. <laughs> they were riding high. Oh, yes. Everyone had a racehorse. There were, might have been 20 or 30 racehorses trained in the town or more, yeah. And were the working conditions good and fair? Yeah, well, I reckon they were because we learned to bail up and we were getting full paying wages here long before the, around this part of the country and parts of New South Wales a generation before me. And actually, I think it was stockmen from around here and Aboriginals were amongst them. We got a 44-hour week for stockmen by bailing up for the big pastoral companies. That was back in the 60s or something when we went on strike. And they give us a 44-hour week and that's why now... I believe all the pastoralists, they don't employ stockmen or station hands, they put on pastoral apprentices. And backpackers. <laughs> yeah. So they don't have to worry about wages and uh, things. They've done away with a lot of those things we thought would do. The mayor of Paru Shire in southwestern Queensland is Lindsay Godfrey. He lives on a property called Tinnanborough which used to have the world's biggest shearing shed, but it's mostly cattle nowadays. We caught up with Lindsay on his lunch break in town. I really can't emphasise enough just how important the wool industry was to all these rural towns that are in this particular latitude. Like, they really depend on the labour and there were so many jobs and so many flow-ons from the wool industry into the communities. So the demise of the wool industry really wasn't just only about the wool industry, it was the demise of a whole range of rural towns from Burke to Longreach to Dubbo to Parks to Quilpie. You know, nothing employs people like wool. So what went wrong? Yeah. Roderick Taylor is a grazier who's seen the odd season or two in the wool industry in Western Queensland. I've been at Adjingmong since I was one. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but <laughs> it's over 60 years anyway. He gave us the lowdown. Well, in the early 90s, that's when uh, Australia peaked with sheep numbers at 180 million. Everybody was producing wool. And, of course, this wasn't sustainable the world demand for wool wasn't that great and of course we ended up with the wool crisis. It was a terrible period. There was something like four million bales of wool stacked in wool stores all around Australia. Nobody wanted it and it still remains one of the most or the worst financial disasters in Australia. It went from say 91 to about 98 before there were any decent wool prices again because they were still trying to sell the stockpile. Also, the government had a scheme, shooting sheep, which you probably know about. There were incredible numbers of, of sheep shot. And, of course, during that period, a lot of wool growers went broke. It was tragic. I know from here in western Queensland, which is predominantly a wool-growing area, 
there was something like 16 people on suicide watch and it was a very sad period. Just going back a bit to the story of what happened in the early 90s there, you said mm. that there just wasn't enough demand. There was too much wool being produced mm. and not enough demand. Mm. So how had that situation arisen? Why wasn't the industry more responsive to the market? It was because we had the reserve price, you know. Even the shopkeeper had a thousand ewes out on somebody's place where uh, they could shear them and um, and get the reserve price for the wool. And of course the world couldn't pay that sort of money. Yeah, and eventually Karen had to um, pull the, the rug on it all and uh, we were back to battling on our own then, yeah. The federal government has bowed to the inevitable and abolished price setting for wool. And some tough medicine today for the wool industry. As expected, Federal Cabinet has abandoned the reserve floor price scheme. After nearly two decades, the floor price scheme has been buried under a stockpile of five million bales and a three billion dollar debt. With the industry divided and many wool growers facing bankruptcy, it's a tough decision. It will devastate the industry. I think it will contract to the stage where there are very few growers left in it. Primary Industries Minister John Kerrin says it's the most difficult decision he's ever had to make. Uh, this is the holy grail. Um, the reserve price scheme's been there 17 years. This is a very tough decision. John Kerrin was Minister for Primary Industries and Energy in 1991 when the wool price crashed. And remember that name because we're going to meet him later. But first, it's time we spoke to Charles Massey, a wool grower from Cooma who spent 10 years researching the events that led to the collapse of the Australian wool industry. I've done a recent calculation of the overnight impact of this collapse in 1991. And we're talking in 91 terms, $12 billion. Now, none of the corporate cowboys come anywhere near that. Adelaide Steamship, maybe seven, but uh, HIH, four and a half. So... Why, why on earth hasn't this story been exposed before? Why wasn't there a royal commission? Because the government's fingerprints were all over this, back through seven cabinets. There wasn't a royal commission, but there is Charles Massey's book, published in 2011, called Breaking the Sheep's Back. He argues that the Australian wool industry was brought undone by a reserve price scheme that was introduced in the 1970s, but had its origins in the protectionism of an earlier time. I, I was in the Victorian government in the wisdom of Providence and I was deputy premier and a deputation came down from the country and I had to take it and the great advocate on the deputation was a dark-haired eager-looking young man called John McEwen it was my first contact with him well so will you tell us about your early life oh, I, I was born in Chilton both my father and mother died when I was quite young and uh, if you go back to the beginning of agri-politics, getting involved in the wool industry, a lot of it's very understandable. You had disastrous soldier settlement schemes. As anyone who's read the Royal Commission into the soldier settlement scheme in the 30s, it was just horrendous. You know, 50% went broke. John McEwen, uh, head of the country party, typifies it. Well, I came onto the block at uh, 19. Uh, I had no money at all. And one of the best things I remember about it was living on rabbits for about 
nearly two years since when I've never looked at a rabbit in the face or on the plate. <laughs> McEwen was a soldier settler. You know, I, I remember one story in his biography. He went and helped a neighbour bury his six-year-old daughter at midnight in the graveyard because he couldn't afford the funeral. You know, so there's no way you can come through those experiences without being deeply scarred. There were troubles of uh, inadequate supplies of irrigation water, debts that the farmers couldn't pay, low prices. All of these things uh, combined, and I seem to be in the middle of all the arguments and representations to the government. And this seemed to lead me naturally to take a, a pretty intense interest in politics, in country party politics. And in 1934, I had the transformation from being a, a battling soldier settler in Stanhope to being a member of the federal parliament. Out of that, through the 30s, had this increasing pressure of disaffected small farmers, many of whom being soldiers hadn't come from a farming background. They might have had labour sort of inclinations, socialist inclinations. And this rose to a crescendo, this, you could say, justified dissatisfaction that the government had got them into the mess. The government had to get them out of it. And uh, that's where the agrarian socialism came in, that the government owed them a living. Then you had this dichotomy. The biggest wool growers in the country tended to be your bigger squatter types, if you like, and especially in the early days. Big stations, they carried a lot of the power in the industry with merino studs and they, they were often in Parliament because of their standing, bearing in mind the wool industry was still Australia's biggest export industry. You'd see them sitting on a lot of the major commercial boards to do with wool, the shipping and insurance companies and even bank boards. And they, by and large, were free market thinkers. So essentially from the late 30s, with this rising insurrection and dissatisfaction of the uh, small wheat sheep farmers, the industry was split down the middle. So you had this, really, what was four or five decades of internecine warfare between <laughs> essentially the two different wool-growing blocs. And that's what frustrated McEwen and some of the politicians. They could never fully drive through their agenda and until it got so desperate in the late 60s that they were able to do that. Chairman of the International Wool Secretariat and the Australian Wool Board, Sir William Gunn, KBE. And then there's old Bill Gunn. Sir William uses aircraft as most businessmen use taxis. It gives him time to catch up on some sleep. Without doubt, he has to be the largest character of any politician that's walked the Australian stage. He was six foot five, two metres. In the new scale, he'd be um, 120 kilos, sort of 18 stone. He didn't respect clothes in that uh, he just didn't worry about them. So the best Italian or English tailors would put a suit on him and within minutes it'd be like a potato sack, it'd be wrecked in front of the European aristocracy of the textile world. He'd stir his uh, coffee with his glasses and deliberately uh, almost deceive them into thinking that he, he was a dumb hick. But underneath he was uh, a Machiavellian, shrewd judge of human character and he could woo a wool grower with wonderful oratory, even if it was a load of bulldust. Uh, that that uh, sounded convincing. You've got a bloody lot to answer for, and you bloody well know it. And I'm telling you, this is the most bloody crazy industry I ever met. 
We're giving wool away today. I got no bloody worry. Well, I got a bloody worry for wool industry. He uh, was a big bulldozing, self-confidence, larger-than-life character, and, and it's, he, he's probably the key player in ramming through the flawed policies that, that followed. He was McEwen's best mate as well. So the most powerful man in government, the power, if you like, the glove fist behind Menzies' throne. Gunn by then was uh, chairman of the Wool Board and the International Wool Secretariat, whom he'd sorted out and uh, he'd chosen a lot of the key players in the industry and he led the referendum fight in favour of a reserve price scheme. A reserve price scheme is what's been known in economic history as a buffer stock scheme. So it's where a government or its authorities believes that they can manipulate the market and they do that. They set a, a trigger level at a low price. If the price drops below that in the market, they buy up with a view to selling into the market. Throughout the 20th century, rubber, tin, cocoa, you name it, every scheme had failed. This is Mrs Ashton speaking on behalf of the Women's Anti-Reserve Price Group. Wool growers don't go under easily. They fought back in times of drought, of fire. They defeated the prickly pear, the dingo and the rabbit. But this last propaganda pest is more subtle, insidious, and has set out to undermine them with every tactic known to this new world of propaganda and psychological warfare. We will only know when the votes are counted who comes out on top, the wool grower with his freedom intact, or the propaganda machine backed by the wool board. Eventually, um, because of the way the opposition to Gunn were able to expose a lot of the, his flawed logic and misquotes of what the international trade was saying. They enabled the referendum to be defeated. Menzies and McEwen had, and the country party had stuck their neck out on pushing for that, and so they got egg on their face. And Gunn had learned his lesson, so they, they vowed, and I've got quotes to show that they were going to play their game behind closed doors this time and not do it democratically. And they were able to do this as things got absolutely desperate by the late 60s, a combination of drought, high costs, and then plummeting uh, wool prices. Synthetics and cotton really unleashed major competitive pressure. And almost by uh, throwing up their hands, the opposition wilted away and the agrarian socialists in agri-politics and in country party, they were able to bring in legislation that had been prepared way back in the um, 50s and 60s to bring in the reserve price scheme. Prices were rock bottom. All kinds of suggestions were put up for a solution to it. In the end, uh, I manoeuvred myself into a position on the wool industry where they had no alternative but to agree. There was no referendums. There wasn't even a vote of wool grower organisations, let alone a referendum. In 1973, the position was desperate. The industry was bankrupt. That's the late Sir William Gunn, reflecting in the 1990s on his moves in the early 70s to push through a protectionist scheme for wool, even though a majority of wool growers had knocked back the idea in two referenda. This is Hindsight on ABC RN. I'm Catherine Franey, and today we're unravelling the wool crisis unpicking the tangled yarn to work out how Australia fell overnight off the sheep's back. 
Charles Massey argues that the seeds for the crash in 1991 were sown in the 70s when an ill-advised buffer stock scheme was forced on the industry by government and agri-politicians. But many wool growers welcomed the scheme. I used to go around the country speaking about it. What position did you take? What do you think? I don't know, tell me. (laughs) (laughs) I was for the reserve price. John O'Sullivan came to Thurlaguna Station in southwest Queensland with his parents in 1952. The original station was a couple of million acres, but it was broken up in the 1940s and 50s, and John's father drew the homestead block, which is about 50,000 acres. The reserve price scheme was a saviour for them in the 1970s. It worked spectacularly well. It was only six or eight months and it turned around. I remember I sold a couple of bales of wool in 1973, August or something, just after it had started. And uh, our agent rang me with some results. We had been in one of the bad sales, March 1972, and it made 17 cents. And that, I think, was the record low and this fella rang me and I think it was August 1973 and I'd sent some crutchings down and he said it's made 178 cents and I said is that for the bail <laughs> and he said no that's that's for the kilo what so the scheme had turned it around in no time at all. And after that, we had a period of prosperity for quite some time. How did it fare initially? Sorry, how did what fare? The reserve price scheme. Well, look, it went along um, pretty well, and that was part of the problem. There was ups and downs, obviously, and they built a couple of big stockpiles in about 74, 75, and then another one in the early 80s, and they sold them down. And... Uh, by the time we get to the late 80s, when the third big stockpile came, the disastrous one, you had a group on the board that had been there through all those earlier period, and, and they they developed this hubris that, look, we can ride any stockpile, we can make a buffer scheme really work, and that was, I think, part of the trap. The prosperity sowed the seeds of its own destruction, eventually. Have you noticed something happening, something going on round here? Have you noticed there's a feeling of something in the air? It's a feeling. Your Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, my wife and I are delighted to be able to return to Australia at this very special time to celebrate with you your nation's bicentennial. back to Sydney and some of the world's leading designers are working furiously at the Sydney Opera House in last-minute rehearsals for Sunday's bicentennial wool fashion extravaganza. Three, four months before the wool peaked at uh, the most extraordinary price of 1,280-odd cents, euphoria was everywhere, everyone felt bulletproof. The Wool Corporation, uh, particularly its uh, extraordinarily 
arrogant leader, David Asmus, decided to throw a big party of self-congratulation. Coincided with the bicentenary. Uh, Lady Di and Prince Charlie, the guest of honour at the Opera House. Really what we're doing is to establish uh, Wool's link with class and style and elegance. It's been an incredible publicity coup, but will it mean dollars and cents for Australia? Well, of course it does. Uh, uh, You know, Wool at the moment is providing a lot of dollars and cents. Uh, As I say, about five and a half billion number one export this year. It was sort of one of those poignant moments. You know, hubris right on the cusp of disaster and it sort of symbolises the end of the era, really. Come on, give us a hand. Everyone likes to pretend that uh, the 80s, the decade of Grieg and the corporate cowboys, Bondi and everyone, that was them. But here's this conservative, careful wool industry. It wouldn't get caught up in the 80s euphoria, but it did. A key moment in this epic tale of boom and bust had come the year before, in 1987, when the minister handed the authority for setting the reserve price to the Wool Corporation itself. The problem was that Kerrin essentially, the minister, placed himself on the sideline as a result of the act, only to have a role under extreme emergency, which eventually happened, but it was too late then. And the other thing it was, uh, it empowered both the Wool Corporation board and the agri-politicians to have a major say in setting the price, in other words, writing their own price ticket. So you had a real moral hazard, what economists call a moral hazard. You had a corporation board looking over its shoulder at these woolly politicians who really, and this was epitomised in 88, were voting themselves a price rise uh, without understanding the market. It It was a recipe for disaster, even though the design behind it was to try and get commerciality into an industry. Uh, my name's John Kerrin. I was Minister for Primary Industry and then Minister for Primary Industries and Energy in the period 1983 to 1991. I took the decision in 1987 to give the Australian Wool Corporation uh, more powers, believing that they were a very commercially experienced organisation and they were certainly seeking more powers. And the main power I gave them Uh, was to set the minimum reserve price, uh, which all came undone eventually in February 1991. So the mistake I made was giving them the power. That's quite self-evident. Can you explain the thinking behind that decision? Wasn't that just a recipe for price gouging? Well, not if they'd um, continued to uh, follow the procedures, whereby before they would make their advice to me as a minister and we would have this checked by the Bureau of Agricultural Economics and the department. It was always by consensus. But when I gave them the power, the last price in 1986-87 minimum reserve price was 508 cents. When I came into government in 83-4, it was 470 cents. They took it up by about 71% in, in quite quickly uh, over four years and uh, that was just far too much. The Australian Wool Corporation, in its best commercial judgment today, announced its preferred position for the floor price to be 870 cents a kilogram clean. The general background to the Hawke-Keating government 
we were entering the, another stage of globalisation. In a way, the world's always been globalised, but this was an economic globalisation and we needed to put the final nails in protection all round for our industries because it was becoming self-defeating. We couldn't really plead to the rest of the world to move to freer agricultural trade when we were maintaining a lot of protection. So it was all quite deregulatory and uh, there were elements of privatisation in it and this accorded very much with the business paradigm of the day. It strikes me as sort of a, a strange mix of neoliberal economics, that deregulatory push, and agrarian socialism. When On the one hand, it's about letting industry stand on their own feet from a sort of pro-market philosophy, but at the same time allow them to fix a price for their product? Yeah, there is a bit of... Um how should I say, a bit of contradiction in there. But I trusted the board. It was a very good board. They'd had an enormous amount of experience dealing with two stock building events. They were handling billions of dollars each year. They had an active research organisation within them. They had the International Wool Secretariat, which was based in London and Leeds. They were fully au fait with the world markets. This was a very experienced professional organisation and I put some trust in them. Do you think it's fair to say, as Charles Massey does, that the wool industry got caught up in the euphoria of the 80s, just with driving that minimum price up as much as 60-70% in the space of two years? I think we all did. And there'd been good reasons for being optimistic. They'd sold more wool for four years than the, the industry had actually produced. Uh, when they took it to 870 the price that year for, well, top fine grades of wool was over 2,000 cents and the market price for all the grades was about 1,200 cents and they really did think that wool had reached a new price plateau, I think. That was their rationale. Um, the disappointing thing in this to me was that I know of two professionals who came out of this debacle with their reputation unscathed. They were Dr Bob Richardson and John O'Connor, who were the economists within the corporation. And apparently, I learnt afterwards, and I learnt even more when I read Charles Massey's books, that they were having all sorts of doubts, but the board was tending to ignore them. Uh, so I'd simply say we were all caught up with it. I certainly thought that the industry had probably turned a corner, even though I was a bit worried about the 870 price, because... I just couldn't understand why the industry didn't understand if they had to start buying wool, they would have to pay a lot more to hold on to it. There's just this extraordinary coincidence through the 80s leading to the crash of the wool industry that the Russian wool industry, with some of the world's biggest mills, between them and China, they were taking up to about a third of the clip because a lot of it went into their army uniforms for their cold climate. And... One of the big factors in the collapse at the end of the 80s was the Berlin Wall coming down and the disintegration of the USSR. And at the same time, extraordinary coincidence, there was political shenanigans in China as it was sorting out between some regional governments who was in charge of what and uh, eventually a, a political clampdown shut down their buying. And those two factors came together almost at the same time as the world economy turned down. And meanwhile, Australian production is just going absolutely gangbusters because Ab it's this guaranteed way of turning a profit. Absolutely right. Combined with a really good run of seasons, which is almost unprecedented. So 
Sheep were growing a lot of wool, we're having a lot of lambs, and every man and his dog, because of the price signal, were putting sheep onto spare paddocks, you know, aunties, back paddock, uh, railroads, you, you name it. It was a licence to print money, whether you're an existing farmer or, or just a fly-by-nighter. This is fine Australian merino wool. The tragedy here is that when things started to go wrong in 1989, it happened very rapidly, like in the blink of an eye, the Wool Corporation in buying wool blew $2 billion in two months, then had to borrow another two in another two months. And it happened that rapidly and it coincided with the federal election of early 1990. And the federal minister, John Kerrin, his advisor said, don't even think of touching this wounded snake, the wool industry, because it'll bite us. So when they should have acted, they left it. My departmental officers and some from the BAE, realising that the corporation, the speed of the buy-in in the first half of 1989 was unprecedented. So we went and saw the Wool Corporation. It was just the key people in it. It was just a bit before Christmas 89. And they said there's no problem whatsoever. After all, we always sell more in the second half of the financial year. They weren't convinced that we had a case. It was very hard for us to say, look, this is unprecedented. Uh, You're buying up to 60% of what's put on the auction floor. Now, January is a very quiet month. The Cabinet didn't meet. I don't think there are any wool sales scheduled. Then we have an election call in March 1990. Now, it's always about four to six-week period where one is in caretaker mode. Now, if the corporation close to the market didn't understand that there was a problem, What hope did the wool growers, the graziers, have of understanding there was a real problem? This would have been beyond their total comprehension. And uh, I think I spoke to the Prime Minister about it, and I said, look, we've got big problems looming in the wool industry. You know, what about we um, collapse the price and take the power from the corporation? And uh, it's not a question of what Bob Hawke told me, but, you know, we were politically astute enough to know that this would have been absolutely impossible. The whole countryside would have been set on fire, really, and uh, that would have been absolutely disastrous for the government. I guess what was in my mind was that um, the way power is dispensed in this country and where power lies. Wool was responsible for over 50% of our balance of payments for, you know, probably 100, 150 years. The wool industry had enormous power, power in the countryside, power in the cities as well. And uh, it wasn't uh, an industry that one took on lightly, just as today we see that the mining industry is not one that governments take on lightly, or big tobacco or big alcohol or the food industries, whatever. When you're in government, you have to understand where the power lies and how far you can push it. 
It came unstuck because Australia's very economy now came under threat. You had um, massive international borrowings. Not only had they blown billions, but they now started to borrow. Eventually, it was over three billion. There was the withdrawal of export revenue as much as the borrowings too. And at the same time, you had Tricontinental Bank and other major merchant banks falling over. So it, the timing was horrendous. But you then had the Australian Wool Corporation and these agri-politicians on their... They were non-elected on their council called Wool Council, digging deeper in the trench. They weren't going to condone. And the minister was caught in the middle. He was trying to get them to see uh, reason, but they wouldn't. Stand firm on 870. And that's what the international trade want. And that's who we ought to be listening to not the economists, I'm sorry. What do you remember of saying no to the Wool Corporation, saying no, Treasury's not going to underwrite this anymore? Oh, well, someone just had to take the decision. And if you're in politics and you're convinced you have to take that decision, um, well, I think you have to do it. Um, you're not put there not to take decisions. Even though I was trying to get them to see it, they never could or would. And that was effectively the end of the minimum reserve price. Yes, but um, I took it down to 700, thinking that we could hang on to it. I think the biggest criticism of me must be that I worked to hang on to the 700 minimum reserve price for too long. I could hardly sack the board. Again, I was concerned about the power of the industry and the, the whole perception. I couldn't have dropped the price in February, a year back, on the verge of an election. So I was always conscious of the political realities in this. But I hung on to it, and I think we spent about $677 million to hold on to the 700 cents. And we had a flock reduction scheme. I think we eliminated 4 million sheep. That wasn't a very pleasant scheme, really, and not worth the effort, in my opinion, but a lot of people are still advocating it. So just reality came right into play and by January, February 1991, the game was up. And some tough medicine today for the wool industry. As expected, Federal Cabinet has abandoned the reserve floor price scheme, facing up to a free market at least until the end of June. With the industry divided and many wool growers facing bankruptcy, it's a tough decision. Indeed, Primary Industries Minister John Kerrin says it's the most difficult he's ever had to make. Mr Kerrin is with Paul Lynham. What happened to the John Kerrin who told the world that the 700 cents floor price was rock-solid, cast-iron and immutable? Well, Paul, I put it to you, no football captain goes onto the field unless he thinks he can win. And I thought we could win when we accepted the business plan by the Wool Corporation. But once the corporation deferred sales, because quite obviously their business plan was shot, Someone had to say, we have to re-evaluate the situation. <laughs> I don't, I'm sure the wool industry won't remember me well. Uh, I just have to simply say that bluntly because um, I'll always be held responsible for it. What's in most people's minds that the wool industry is, is one of our major industries, and it was, and um, still could be. What do you think that would depend on? Well, the rising middle class in the north of the planet has more and more... Chinese or Indians gain more income, they will probably want better apparel wool. So I think there's a growing market there, but to what extent, um, you know, I'm just not close enough to it. But I always think deep down that surely we've only got 70 million sheep or something like that in the country now, that surely there must be a price rise at some time that's 
quite profitable for wool producers. I went to a funeral in January at Burke and it was about 120 degrees. I had a wool suit and I was standing there out on the flat. Everybody else had umbrellas and fanning themselves and I could not believe it. I wasn't cool, but I was comfortable. And I thought, God, wool's a great fibre. It's a great fibre. OK, I'm uh, Rod Taylor and I live on a property called Agingbong which is about 30 kilometres the other side of Kanamala. Edgingbong's about 75,000 acres and we run about 12,000 sheep and 1,000 head of cattle. We're one of the few that have stayed in the merinos. I suppose I'm just a loyalist to the wool industry. I just love my merinos. I love opening up the fleece and seeing the beautiful fibre there. And this has been my life, so... Uh, that's why I'll stick with it, I guess. You know, I always think if you stick with something for long enough, you'll get the reward. I'm Kim Thomas. I'm from Kamu Pastoral Company. It's 83,000 acres. We're in a dorper breeding situation now of fat lambs. Was previously merinos for the last five generations till 2000. I love wool and my sister, who's a high flyer, has got the wool, but... You know, not many people in... Yeah, that's right. It's got the wool in the suits and, and it's great. You take it on a plane. Well, you know, it's great. It's fantastic. I love it. But we couldn't see with the amount of people in the wool industry how we would keep going. And after five generations, I just felt so passionately that I wanted to be out of wool. I had had such a gut full. I now knew it couldn't be any worse. The pressures are still there, but it's sheep husbandry pressure now. Whereas we, in the wool industry, we had the pressure of the wool industry as well as the sheep husbandry. So you, it was a double whammy. We have big groups aggregating lots of country around us. The Clyde started it and their success is the Hassad. They have a big aggregation of country to our north and the SLM group have bought whatever's left pretty well. They're planning to do a lot of cell grazing, uh, concentrating on cattle. Have you been approached yeah. to sell up? And what kind of decision is that for you? There was no question of it. Oh, I'm, I'm quite pleased with what I do. I'm going to stay in it. But, you know, as the drought continues, do you I've revisit that decision? Mm. I like it here. This was one of the most tightly held pockets of country in the world. Once it started to break apart, then the rush set in and became an avalanche. And gradually we're down to just the few boulders left. I don't know what's going to be required to shift us. Anyway, we'll see what happens when the clouds burst and the rivers run. Kanamala grazier John O'Sullivan, digging in his heels at Thurlaguna Station in southwestern Queensland. 
How Australia Fell Off the Sheep's Back was produced by Catherine Franey. The associate producer was Dr Prudence Black and the sound engineer was Andrei Sharbanov. Thanks to all those who took part in today's program. Thanks also to Julian Cribb, Peter Crisp, Joy Jobbins, Roy and Doreen Allen, Tud Murphy, John Bryan, Carmel Murant, Charlie McKenzie and his shearing team, Jenny Key, Michael Lakuta and Conversations with Richard Feidler. Charles Massey's book, Breaking the Sheep's Back, is published by University of Queensland Press. And if you head to the Hindsight webpage, all the information is there. You can listen online or download a copy and leave us a comment. We always love to hear from you. Just go to abc.net.au slash Radio National and look in the drop-down box for Hindsight. Next week on the program, to mark Anzac Day in an important year, it's the centenary of the outbreak of World War I, we bring you a personal account of the legacy of that war, told by one of our most respected historians, Alistair Thompson. It's a program about generations of his family living with the Anzac legend and how he uncovered the real story of his grandfather's war trauma through his medical files. On examination, patient is somewhat dull in mental alertness, markedly different to when previously examined by me a year ago. Mental state prevents a personal investigation into his symptoms as he appears unable to activate his mentality and appears as if in a dream, is now quite incapable of work. Condition may improve in six months' time, but outlook is unfavourable. Just an extract from Searching for Hector on hindsight to mark Anzac Day next Sunday at 1 here on RN. But for now, that's our program. I'm Lorena Allam. Thanks for listening today. My thanks also to Joe Wallace. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon here on RN. <laughs>